Good morning. How are we doing? If you aren't here for first service, uh, probably most of you weren't, you missed getting to see me dive bombed by a wasp for the first five minutes of my sermon. Actually landed on my head at one point. We're hoping that doesn't happen again. Um, although it was quite entertaining, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I got called in to preach kind of last minute. Uh, so I uh, found out on Thursday that I was getting to preach, but I'm, I'm excited to do, do that with you this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 24, uh, so if you want to go ahead and turn uh, to Psalm 24, uh, or if you need a Bible and uh, a physical copy and don't have one, if you want to raise your hand, our ushers would be glad to bring you one. Just kind of keep that, uh, that arm up and they'll, they'll bring you one. Anybody? Anybody? Going once? Okay. Um, but uh, if, uh, if you do grab one of those and, uh, and you don't own a copy of God's Word, we'd be happy for you to take it home with you as well. Um, so we're going to jump into Psalm 24. And one thing I love about the Psalms, uh, before we read this together today, is, is they, they cover the gamut of, you know, emotions. So there are psalms that are great for rejoicing. There are psalms that are great for mourning. And, and basically, however we're feeling this morning, what, whatever may be going on in our lives, uh, the psalms meet us there. And, and I don't know if you've ever just felt like, I know I need to spend time with God. I don't even know, like, what to do. Sometimes you just turn to the psalms, and, and you just... You just pour out your heart and you feel what's being expressed here and God meets you in that moment. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but sometimes I feel that way. But, but there's something for us here. Here's, here's what one of my favorite professors, uh, who's now with Jesus, uh, said about the Psalms. Uh, but he said, he said, the purpose of the individual poems, these Psalms, as well as the entire collection of the Psalter was to preserve the inspired words of Israelite songwriters as they express, listen, the heights and the depths of their relationship with God. Their poems were preserved to guide God's people in later times and how to approach him no matter what experiences they were un- undergoing. So there's, there's just, there's a lot for us here. And that, that's amazing. And so I just want to encourage you, however you're feeling this morning, let's like, let's jump in and uh, let's hear from God today. So let's go ahead and read this, Psalm 24, together. And we're going to read the whole thing, and this is what it says. It's a psalm of David, and he writes this. He says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then we get this end part, right? Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your head, your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. 
And I want to point out three main things in this psalm today. Number one, I want to talk about the original setting. Okay, so how were the Israelites understanding and, and perhaps using this psalm? Number two, I want us to just check out what this psalm teaches us about who God is. Okay, and then that's going to create a massive problem as we, as we hear about who God is because we want to approach him, but that's no easy task. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? We need clean hands and a pure heart. And so we're going to see how Jesus actually solves that problem for us. Okay? So we're going to try to cover some ground in quick order here. But uh, I, first want, I first want to pray, and then, and then I want to dig in. So pray with me here. Father, help us to hear clearly from your word. And Lord, whatever it is you need to speak to each and every individual heart, only you can do that. Lord, speak to each person here, whatever it is they need to hear from you. And Father, help it to be not so much that they hear me speaking, but they hear the God of the universe communicating with them. Lord, fill me with your spirit and help me. In Jesus' name, amen. So first thing I want to talk about is the original context. This song is clearly liturgical. There's kind of a call and response going on here. And so one commentator, William uh, Warren Wearsby, says this. He says, he says imagine verses 1 and 2, that the choir sings verses 1 and 2. So we'll just kind of do that. The earth, so a choir. The earth is the Lord, the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in them, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Okay? And then imagine that there's a response from somebody different. So the choir sing verses 1 and 2, and then a different voice sings verse number 3 and says this. It says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? So, so everything's God's. He's there. And then, but how can we get to him? And so that question is kind of asked. And then, then another voice jumps in, verses, verse 4, and responds, here's, here's who can ascend the hill of the Lord. The person who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't lift up his soul to what's false and doesn't swear deceitfully. And then somebody else, perhaps, a chorus, verses 5 and 6, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This is clearly liturgical, written for a worship service. And the original context we're not exactly sure of, but I want to I offer a guess, and it's Charles Spurgeon's guess, so it's a good guess. We'll just go with Spurgeon. But this most likely was written for the time when the Ark of the Covenant was entering into Jerusalem for the very first time. So if you, and and I want to go over the history just for a second if you don't know it, but at the time early in Israel's history, there was a priest named Eli, and he was a pretty good priest, but his sons were kind of rotten, and they were priests. And so they were leading the country astray, and Israel was kind of just on this like, they were in this bad place. Because Eli was getting old, and he was not going to live much longer. And his, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were just bad dudes. They were like sleeping around and stealing food, seriously, and like stealing food and eating more than they're supposed to and not taking their jobs seriously as priests. And at that time, Israel went out into battle, and they said, let's take the Ark of the Covenant, right, which is this box that's overlaid with gold. It's the place where the Ten Commandments were inside. 
And it was a representation of the presence of God in Israel. It was their most holy, sacred artifact. Um, and they, they took it out with them into battle. They were fighting against the Philistines kind of as like a good luck charm. Like if we've got the ark, we can't lose. And so they take this ark out into battle against the Philistines. And what happens? <laughs> the ark gets captured by the Philistines. Hophni and Phinehas die. Eli dies. And, and one of Hophni and Phinehas' uh, uh, wives, one of, the, one of their wives, she's having a, a baby, and she hears the news. Like, Israel gets completely routed, and, they, and she said, what happens? And they're like, Hophni and Phinehas is dead. Eli's dead. The ark's been captured. And, and she goes into premature labor because she's pregnant. And she dies in labor. And, and she names her son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel. Because she just, she, she literally dies in childbirth in sorrow because just everything. And, and this Ark of the Covenant hangs out with the Philistines for a while. They, they first put it in, in a temple to their, their false god, Dagon. And Dagon's this big statue. And when the ark gets in there, they set it in front of Dagon. They, they come back the next day, I guess, to burn incense or however they worship this god. And, and literally, Dagon, the statue, has fallen down in front of the ark of God. And they're like, oh, crap, how did this happen? You know? so, so they pick him back up, send him back up. Like, Let's try this again. They go away. And the next day they come back. And this time Dagon has not only fallen down, but his, his hands and his head have been chopped off. And, and God's letting everybody in, in Philistia know, like, this is a different sort of God. I'm a different, I'm the real God. I am Yahweh. The same way he did with the Egyptians, with the ten plagues. The, the, the word about who this God of Israel was, who he really was, that he was a different sort of God, that he was the true God, the creator of all things, that word got out. And so now the Philistines are realizing again, oh, this, this is a different sort of God. So after that happens, they're like, well, let's not put this back with Dagon. This doesn't work. So they start moving this Ark of the Covenant around into every city it goes. When it goes there, the Philistines break out in plagues and all sorts of bad things happen. And it doesn't take them too long to go like, we're done with this thing. Let's give it back. <laughs> like, we give it back. And so they make a cart for it. And they don't even man the cart. They just hook up a couple oxen to the cart wooden cart, set the ark on the cart, and they're like, they just point it, and <laughs> they get on the road, and they're like, point it towards Israel, and they're like, you go on now, God of Israel, like, we don't want anything to do with you. And so the ark of the covenant walks back into the area, the land of Israel. And when Israel sees it coming down the, the path, they don't know this happened, they rejoice, and they quickly take the ark, and they move it into uh, the house of, um, let me find my place here so I can remember. They move it into the house of Kirith Jerem, in the house of Abinadab. And it chills there for 20 years. And his house, the house of Abinadab, just experiences the blessing of God for these 20 years that the ark resides there. Eventually, you know, we go through Saul, not that great a king. David becomes king. And he makes Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God, the capital of the nation. And he says, the ark needs to be here with us. Doesn't need to just be in a house. It needs to be in 
the city of Zion. It needs a temple. And he actually, if you know, he, he wants to build a temple for the ark. And God says, you're not going to do that. Your son Solomon's going to do that. But good on you. That's a good idea. And so he wants to bring this ark back into the city of God. And when they go to bring the ark back into the city of God, they don't follow God's instructions for how they're supposed to move this thing. And so it's supposed to be carried with these poles, these wooden poles that are covered in gold. And the priests would carry it on their shoulders, four of them, kind of like a big coffin, but it's not. It's the Ark of the Covenant. And they're supposed to carry it that way. Instead, they, they pull the Philistine thing and they're like, well, let's just, the cart works. Let's just keep putting it on a cart, which that may not seem like a big deal to you or I, but God had specified you do it this way, not that way. And so as they're bringing this ark towards Jerusalem, one of the oxen stumbles, and the whole cart kind of goes like that, and the ark of the covenant starts to slide and fall off, and this guy named Uzzah reaches up his hand to steady the ark so it doesn't fall into the mud, and when he touches the ark of the covenant, he immediately dies. God strikes him dead. And all of Israel, including David, are just kind of like, like David's mad. <laughs> He's like, God, I'm trying to do this thing for you. Like, what's going on? And, and it seems as if God's just trying to teach them, I am holy. You, you need to understand that. I am above you and above your ways a holy God, and, and you can't just enter into my presence. You can't just know me because you decide to know me. And so they repent. It, it, the, the ark ends up staying there in the house of Obed-Edom for a few days. And David repents, and he seeks God, and then he says, okay, God, we're going to do it your way. And so then the ark of the covenant is carried in Jerusalem, and likely this psalm is written for that occasion. And so Jerusalem's on a hill and they're carrying the ark and they're reminding themselves of who this God is. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the rivers. And then they think, who, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can go into this holy God's presence? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And they say, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of, of Jacob. And then in verse 7, this, this weird part about the, the doors lifting up their heads, this is likely when they got to the gates of Jerusalem. And, and it's a poetic way of saying, open wide the gates. Oh, lift up your heads, O you gates, that the King of glory may come in to Jerusalem. And so they sing this out. And that's, that's probably the original setting of this psalm. Okay. And what this psalm teaches us about God is first that he is holy and righteous and the creator of all things and the owner of all things and the world is his. I don't, I don't know if you've realized that this morning. But whether or not you consider yourself a God follower, a Jesus follower or not, the Bible teaches us that all of us were created for God and we are God's. Not God's, but we're his. 
And so you see this repeated throughout the scriptures. Romans 14 says, why do you pass judgment on a brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess I shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We are gods. He is the God. He is the one who decides everything. And, and he owns and rules everything. And we cannot just enter into his presence as if it's no big deal. So uh, J.I. Packer kind of helps us understand this. And he says, I want you to imagine that you're being introduced to somebody whom you feel to be above you. This is an important person. He says, whether it's somebody who's above you in rank or intellectual distinction or professional skill, you're down here and they're up here. And he says, the more we, the more conscience that we are of our own inferiority, the more we shall feel that our part is simply to attend to this person respectfully and let him take the initiative in the conversation. And he says, think of meeting the queen or the Duke of Edinburgh, or you, you insert the person that you just are like, I, I never thought in my life I would meet this person. They are amazing. You know, and he says, you're going to meet that person. And he says, you, you, you don't get to make the initiative when approaching that person. They take the initiative with you. That's how it is with God. We can, we can know that we were created for God and for his glory, and that he's the owner and the ruler of everything, and we, we can desire a relationship with him, but he takes the first initiative to actually allow us to have relationship with him. And here are the requirements. We need clean hands. We need a pure heart. Because because of our sinfulness, God can strike us dead just like that. And it's no trifling thing to enter into his presence. On the Day of Atonement once a year, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice and sprinkle blood on top of that Ark of the Covenant. And it was a picture of, the you know, in the Ark was the Ten Commandments. And the people continually broke the Ten Commandments. They didn't do what God asked. And the, there were these angel statues, seraphim, I believe, on top of the ark, made out of gold. And they looked down on top of the ark as if looking down in judgment upon the broken law of God. And the priest then would take blood and sprinkle it. And the idea was that the blood covered the broken law so that the people could have access to this God. And so we, we see that God is owner and rule of everything and that he's holy and that we can't just enter into his presence. And, th and this actually in this, in, in this psalm creates a massive problem. So for them originally, they were offering, they had to cleanse themselves in the way that God had prescribed. They had to offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins. They had to purify themselves. They had to eat the right things, do the right things. And then they could approach the hill of the Lord. Then they had clean hands and, and a pure heart and could go into God's presence and could have God's presence with them. 
Because with, without that, without the shedding of blood, the Bible says, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's so weird to us in 2021. That's such a weird thought, really? Like, like blood has to be shed? But the whole Bible is teaching us that, that a sacrifice had to be paid. Our sin is so serious that a sacrifice had to be paid for us to be able to be in the presence of God and to know him intimately. And so this psalm actually creates a, a massive problem. And, and, and here's how I want to picture it. I could, we could go over a lot of details, but I want to skip ahead. And I want to talk about how Jesus solves the massive problem of this psalm. And to do that, I just want to read to you a meditation that a guy named Jared Wilson had on this psalm. And so he, I mean, he reads it, and then he kind of has a thought. And here's what he says. He says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And then he says, okay, what's that saying? There's a God. He existed before anything existed. For he's always existed, and he'll always exist. He created everything that exists outside of himself, and therefore he owns it all, including people. And he reads the next verse. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? How, how can we enjoy fellowship with this awfully holy God? Who can justifiably enter his presence? And here's the answer from the psalm. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then and listen, to, listen to his meditation on, after he reads that. He says, sigh. I would love to enjoy fellowship with God, to receive his blessing and his righteousness he says, but I, I don't have clean hands. And I don't have a pure heart. And I have often lifted up my soul to falsehood. And I have often sworn deceitfully. And if that's the standard for acceptance unto God's favor, if that's what I need to be able to be in His presence, then I can only hang my head in shame and sorrow. And maybe you're here today and you've been trying to do life on your own terms, call your own shots, do it your own way. And you know, maybe you're not admitting it out loud, but you know this thing ain't working. I'm pretty miserable. Maybe some of you are in deep trouble and you're making a mess of your life. And it's hidden right now but you're scared to death that it's going to leak out and everybody's going to see what you've done. That's what sin does to us. And when that's the case, we don't have clean hands. We don't have a pure heart. We can't know the God of the universe. But. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. What? What, what do you mean? Who, who is this king of glory? 
the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And, and listen to what Jared Wilson says. He says, wait, what? Christ, the Lord, enters this equation. He says, well, of course he does. Of course he can do it. Jesus can abide in God's presence. He can receive the blessing from the Lord. He has a pure heart and he has clean hands. He is not false or deceitful in any way. And certainly he has sought the will of the Father at all times. I don't have to hang my head in shame anymore because Christ is my righteousness. And he has entered and purchased justification before the holy God for me. You see that that the essence of how we want to approach God usually is, is a religious way. We want to earn God's favor. We want to say, I can do this. I can clean up my hands. I can have a pure heart. I can live the right way. But that never works. Because secretly or maybe publicly, we've screwed up. And so the essence of Christianity is not us trying to earn our way to God or do enough. The essence of Christianity is saying only one has done enough. Only one has pure hands and a clean heart. And only one can enter into God's presence justifiably. And he entered into God's presence for me and now gifts me salvation if I will only trust in him alone by faith. We have no hope apart from Jesus. But if we have royally screwed up, we have tremendous hope in Jesus. And we can know and have personal relationship with the God of the universe. So you see, the original setting of the psalm was probably the taking of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, the presence of God with them. But in light of Jesus, the New Testament church began to use this psalm on the day of ascension every year. And if you're from a more liturgical background, the day of ascension is the day that the church celebrates the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And so I want to read uh, this to you. Uh, In light of Jesus, the early church began using this psalm to celebrate and worship every year on the day of ascension. The only one who could truly ascend the hill of the Lord, who truly has clean hands and a pure heart, is Jesus. He ascended and there became the sacrifice that would allow others to enter God's presence. He died so that we could have clean hands and a pure heart given to us by Jesus. And then he entered the temple, not in Jerusalem, but the temple not made with hands, the temple in heaven. He ascended to God and, and, and made a way for us to be in the presence of God and both to experience that presence now by way of the Holy Spirit and relationship with God and one day when we are fully and totally in the awe-inspiring glory of God. It's only through Jesus. So Jesus said to his disciples very plainly, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Not through themselves, not through their own effort, only through me. 
And I just, I want you to hear that again, maybe with fresh ears, because that's so not America 2021. That's actually a very radical idea, that Jesus is the only way. It's the only way. It's a very radical idea that we can't earn our salvation. We can't self-actualize enough to actually live our best life now. It doesn't work. You can get fitter and you can get your finances in order, but to really have true meaning in life, to really know the reason for which you are created is, is to be in relationship with the God of the universe. And the only way that can happen is that your sin has to be taken away by the sacrifice that Jesus offered once and for all on the cross by his death and then resurrection. So that leaves us with just a few ways of kind of applying and thinking about this. One, we need to be honest about how bad our sin is. It keeps us from God. Isaiah 59, I think. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We are not naturally known, born knowing God. We're separated from him. Two, Jesus has made a way. And so we need to be honest about the depth of our sin. We need to be honest about the only cure for our sin, which is Jesus. So maybe there's some in here today and there's never been that moment where you're like, you're exploring. Maybe you're somewhat religious, but there's never been that moment where you're like, I'm casting all my cares upon him and Jesus and Jesus alone because he cares for me and he is the only way I can be saved. I'm not going to do it on my own. I'm casting it on him. And so maybe some of you may need to make that decision today because Jesus is offering you salvation today. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So maybe that's you today. Here's the other application. You're in Christ. You know it. You know you're trusting him alone for salvation. You're his child. You do have confident access to God through Jesus. He has made your hands clean and your, and your heart pure and you're his child and he loves you and, you and you have relationship with Jesus. But all of us, this side of eternity, struggle with sin. And our daily life doesn't always match up to the eternal reality that's been settled once and for all. And so we need to regularly confess sin and ask for forgiveness. We're already forgiven. We can be confident that God's answer is always going to be yes. And yet the Bible teaches us to regularly confess sin and ask for forgiveness. So David Platt says it this way. He says, we need Jesus' death on the cross as a covering for our sin. He says, but then the picture, once we have placed our faith in Christ, is that we walk in holiness. We walk with clean hands, and whenever we dirty our hands in sin in all kinds of different ways, then we come before God, and we ask him for grace 
to cover over our sins. We ask for his forgiveness. We confess those sins. We ask him to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he says, we need this every day before God. We need a regular examination of our hearts, confession of sin, and then receiving of cleansing grace from God. And he says, so I want to encourage you. I hope that this is part of your daily pattern to examine your heart and confess sin before God. And and not just daily, but during the day, at the same time, I want to encourage you if for some reason you're not regularly confessing sin or or maybe it's been a while since you really did a, a deep clean, so to speak, in your own heart and just ask God to uncover areas of your heart that are sinful and, and, and to show you what's there and then to confess and repent. He says, I want to encourage you to do that. And my, my fear sometimes about 24 Church is somebody who's been around here for a while. And my fear about my own self, just so we're clear, is that we do a fairly good job as a church of accepting people just as they are. You don't have to dress up here. You don't have to try to pretend to be something you're not. Some of us still do try to pretend, but but you don't really have to. You can just kind of show up warts and all. Is that some of us get here and and we're accepted by Jesus, but but then there's never this pattern of regular confession and repentance. And see, Jesus will take you exactly how you are, but he won't leave you exactly how you are. He accepts us, accepts us exactly how we are. We don't have anything we can offer God. But then once we know him, once he lives within us, he begins to change us. And one of the ways, and this change is often slow, And one of the ways he changes us, one of the methods that he's given us to help sanctify us, that's the big word, to make us more holy, is that we regularly need to confess our sins and ask him to forgive us and to cleanse us and say, God, I I am not, I'm in relationship with you, but we're not tight like I want to be tight. And I know one of the reasons we're not tight is that I've just been doing whatever I want. I've cheapened your grace, and I'm just kind of doing whatever I want. And so that's me a lot of times. And my guess is it's you a lot of times. And so I want to encourage you to confess and repent and know that grace is abundant. Because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray that you would do all the work right now to just let us receive and hear and walk away with the truth that we really need to hold on to. And so, Lord, there's there's likely some here and they've been exploring you, but there's never been that time where they know they've trusted in Jesus alone. And I want to pray, Father, that you would overwhelm their heart and help them to choose Jesus and to want Jesus and want the forgiveness alone that he offers. And so, Father, would you save people and bring them into relationship with you today? And, Father, for the many of us who have not been treating sin as if it's serious, who maybe don't have a regular pattern of confession and repentance as your children. Lord, help us to develop that. Help us to be a church that desires to be 
holy. That doesn't mean stick in the mud. That just means walking in the ways of Jesus. And we need your help to do that. So, Father, would you convict us if you need to? Would you help us to run to a place of mercy and grace, knowing that if we confess our sins, you're going to forgive us? Or that if we draw near to you, you're going to draw near to us? So, Lord, speak. Help us now to worship and help this stuff to sink in and to change us. Holy Spirit, help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.